It's Thursday, September 18th. Welcome to Mark Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Funds, Tim Hansen. Happy Thursday. Thank you, sir. Alibaba, going public tomorrow. Boom, finally. We've been, we've been getting some inquiries. Um, let's talk about it. I don't think there's anyone who thinks that this is going to be an IPO that does anything other than make a huge pile of money. <laughs> that seems to be the direction it's heading. And yet, I'm curious wh- what you think. I guess let's talk about the IPO and then we can get into the business because let me just hit you with something I read today. And, and this is probably not news to you, but it was news to me. And I'm, I'm reading from uh, one of CNN's websites. Investors who buy the stock don't technically get to own the company. Jack Ma, uh, CEO, founder? Founder. Founder, CEO. Uh, Jack Ma and a group of Chinese citizens who founded and helped run Alibaba are still the technical owners of the company's assets. Rather, investors simply get the rights to the profits that are sent to a holding company known as a variable interest entity, which is based in the Cayman Islands. Because, of course, that's where you're going to base something like that. Um, So, just on the surface of that, that makes me... Think well. Wait a minute. Is the it like, whoa? Is there a height? Is there a heightened level of risk when this is the setup for investors? Yes. Okay. Next question. <laughs> is is it such a heightened level of risk that you yourself, regardless of how big Alibaba is and how dominant a market share the company has, is this a situation where, as an investor, you say, as long as that's the situation, I don't want any part of this? Yes. Really? Well, so the thing here is that <clears throat> you don't own the operating business. Um, you own uh, a, a, a shares of a holding company which has a contract with the operating business in China. And the reason it's structured that way is because, um, technically speaking, foreigners are not allowed to own sensitive assets in China. And information technology is included in that group, as is banking, energy, um, food, st- you know, things that, that the Chinese government thinks might foment revolution. So, the dignity of that contract, um, so the, the dignity of that contract has really never been tested in any legal forum, because um, there, there are lots of companies that use this structure, Baidu, Sina, uh, others. And so it, it's not clear that, that if the contract ever were to be challenged, who, which side would be upheld? Would the Chinese citizens be allowed off scot-free? Would they have to uphold their obligations under the contract? Where would you even litigate such a matter? Would it be in China? Would it be outside of China? Um, and there are some horror stories about these VIE structures going poorly. Um, a few years ago, there was a company called Gigamedia, which owned, uh, I think it was called like T2CN, which was a video game developer in China. And they had a, they had a contract with, the, they acquired the company in China and then had to structure it as a VIE. Um, they made the mistake, in hindsight, of keeping on uh, incumbent management to run the business. And ultimately, they became dissatisfied with how incumbent management was running the business and decided that they were going to fire this person. Um, rather than take his firing and, and go home, um, he took the all the paperwork. <laughs> he took and all the money. He took all the right to do business in China and, and walked. And, and Giga Media tried to get it back. And, and China said, no, nah, you don't have any way to do that. You know, that, that doesn't work. Um, another potential issue that was surfaced a few years ago by the SEC had to do with a company called New Oriental Education. And they questioned whether New Oriental 
because the other part of this contract uh, this contract that's never actually been tested is you as a foreigner have a right to the profit but no chinese operating company has ever actually distributed the profits back out to the holding company they've all said they're going to use keep the money in china to reinvest it china obviously has controls on the inflows and outflows of currency from the country um, and various tax regimes that govern repatriating earnings, as we do here in the United States. And it's a bit of a fuzzy issue as to how much cash would actually be withheld were it were a operating company via VIE structure to try to actually transfer it back out to shareholders. So it might be 30%. It might be. I've seen estimates as high as 80 or 90% after all the relevant tax authorities get their cut. Um, so valuing the business is kind of hard because you don't know what actual claims on cash you have as an investor. Um, you're sort of just hoping that, I don't know, I guess they continue to invest it at high rates and you do okay and someone buys the shares off you on the other side at a higher price. There's also the, you can take the time arbitrage bet that China will liberalize this regime more and more and if you're going to hold the shares for 10 or 20 years, um, it will be easier to get money in and out of China or maybe they'll declare VIE structures a remnant of the past and say foreigners, yeah, you can own internet assets in China. We're not that afraid of things happening anymore. I don't know what the likelihood of that is. Um, but at the end of the day, the key parts of this structure for foreign shareholders have never been declared actually legal in China, and it's, they've never actually been tested. So you are putting a great deal of faith in the management team to do it the right way. And while there are some companies, I think, who have demonstrated that maybe they deserve that faith, faith um, faith as long as you are getting the requisite rates of return. Like people running Alibaba have a very checkered history of, of um, honesty. Um, <laughs> to put it bluntly. So I wouldn't necessarily give them the benefit of the doubt. This is a company that, if the IPO goes as expected, will have a market cap somewhere close to or higher than Amazon.com. I mean, this is, this is right out of the gate, most likely going to be one of the biggest, certainly, e-commerce companies in the world. I am curious what you think the threat is to businesses in the United States. And just for one example, uh, earlier this week, shares of LinkedIn were down, I think, 7% in a single day, and it was sort of tied back to Alibaba. Yahoo obviously has literally a stake in Alibaba. Yahoo is about to get several billion dollars because they have to sell 27% of their stake right out of the gate. Um, just when you look at sort of the landscape of the big e-commerce... I shudder to think what Yahoo's going to do with that money. What's that? I shudder to think what they're going to do with that money. That really, you know... <clears throat> let's talk about that for a second because that is, you know, on the one hand, you can look at that and say, gosh, would that we all had that problem for our businesses that all of a sudden now we have, say, $6 billion that we didn't have last week and we have to invest it. But it really is, it really does come with a hell of a lot of pressure for Marissa Meyer. Well, I mean, the market, given what Yahoo's been doing recently in their core business, I think the market would much rather have that cash tied up in Alibaba than it would have Yahoo have the discretion over it. Um, certainly, that's been a better place for the cash to be over the last five five years. Um, I think they have committed to giving some of it back to shareholders as dividends. Maybe they'll do some repurchases, so the stock's probably expensive if, if they're divesting Alibaba. Um, but you know who should be very excited? 
are some uh, California-based sole proprietors of potentially disruptive internet technologies because Yahoo may throw some money at them in the pursuit of growth. <laughs> and then maybe never use the product again. <laughs> and then just quietly <laughs> shut it down. <laughs> um, how, how threatened should Amazon eBay, LinkedIn, like if you're if you're a shareholder of any of these companies, if if you're leadership at any of these companies, do you look at the business of Alibaba and think they they're they're a monster we're going to have to contend with, or do you look at it and say you know what the only difference between last week and this week is this you know by the end of this week they're going to be a public company? I think the latter. Um, you know. Alibaba's obviously built a really, really impressive business in China doing online commerce and then doing B2C commerce um, between people who want to do build things in America and suppliers they can find in China. Um, it's a great model. It's a model that they've, you know, an e-commerce model that they copied to some extent from, or, you know, or the pioneers of it. Um, you know, they've got a payments processor. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a very strong business, but I think at this point it's probably most powerful in, in China. I mean, if you had <clears throat> expectations of Amazon.com or eBay or someone dominating the Chinese market, I, I think that market's already already spoken for. But similarly, I don't think Alibaba, you know, the U.S. market is probably also already spoken for as well. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. It's, obviously, I think you'd rather be in China given the growth rates and the internet penetration rates and things like that there. So it's a great growth story. Um, it is an extremely profitable, fast-growing business. I mean, it, it is a behemoth in China, and and that is the crux of the investing thesis. You just have to, you know, I just don't think management is very very trustworthy. Let's move on to the NFL, um, and this is something. Speaking you had, of behemoths, speaking of behemoths, uh, boy, the, the the last couple of weeks for the NFL. Could hardly have gone worse uh, in terms of the image of the NFL. We were talking earlier this week. You, I think you had tweeted out that you were basically, basically like, I think I'm done with the NFL for a little while. I think yeah. I'm going to focus on college soccer, um, which, you know, you're Georgetown Hoyas. They got a heck of a soccer team. They have a good team this year. Um, but in terms of the NFL, I think what's different now is the advertisers are starting to speak up. And when you, you know, anyone who has spent any time watching pro football on a Sunday afternoon, you can pretty quickly figure out that the big three in terms of advertisers are beer, cars, and fast food. Uh-huh. And this week we have statements from McDonald's, from Anheuser-Busch, from Pepsi. Um, I haven't seen anything from uh, an auto uh, company, but uh, Bridgetown tire came out uh, and basically saying, you know, if you've seen the statement from Anheuser-Busch, which I got to say, whoever wrote that uh, should get a, a spot bonus because that is in just three sentences, Anheuser-Busch, which by the way, pays the NFL $200 million a year in advertising. Um, in just three sentences, they just completely undercut the way the NFL has handled all of these issues with Domestic violence, you know, potential child abuse, all these sorts of things. I, I am, I am curious, what goes through your mind when you see this playing out? Like, how much, you know, because despite all of this, it's still a behemoth. The NFL, it is still poised to make billions of dollars over the next, I think, seven years is how long their their current television agreement goes out. 
How threatened is this business right now? You know, I don't think I don't think it's it's threatened in the sense that people are going to stop watching football and it's going to stop raking in raking in the money. I think it it needs to revisit its priorities in some way, like a lot of businesses do over time, um, and and draw a map of its various stakeholder groups and decide you know which 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 ones it chooses to serve. Um, generally speaking. You know, the NFL does not have shareholders per se, but it has owners who all share in the profits of it. And those owners have become fantastically wealthy on the back of, you know, profit maximization. And they have done that by making the game more dangerous for the players, by putting people on the field who maybe don't, haven't earned the right to be there, you know, and trying to make heroes out of people who, really aren't that heroic at the end of the day and in doing so have done a disservice to their employees. I think they've done a disservice to the world clearly. And depending on who you are as a customer, maybe you love, you know, the, you, you just want to see the best 22 guys on the field at any given time flying around, hitting each other as hard as they can, um, bordering on, you know, legal versus illegal in the rules. Maybe that does serve you as a customer. I think, you know, if you're not to, not to, to, um, kind of go kumbaya or what or, or what have you but as a parent you know it's hard it's hard to get excited about you know turning your kids loose to watch yeah um people that you know aren't aren't great character and have you know having them root for people and, and not explain to them the other side of the the story so i think in a sense they have done a disservice to their customers um so i think it's just a matter for them saying look we've got a great product um we've got a great history let's rethink you know which how we're going to serve all of our stakeholders at the same time in a way that's fair and 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 tries to balance the interests of each and if it, you know if it costs the owners some money um it will probably it would probably cost them less than um what it would cost them if Anheuser-Busch and others stopped advertising with them and, or others stopped paying for TV rights to the games is that going to happen probably not at the end of the day um you know for every person like me who was like yeah you know what i'm gonna go watch georgetown soccer last sunday there were probably there were a million people who didn't so you mentioned the profit maximization and i gotta say as i've watched this story unfold one of the thoughts that has gone through my mind is looking at the business of the nfl looking how that business has been run and up until i would say maybe a month or so ago it's been an, an incredibly well-run business in terms of all aspects of it. And in some ways, the most surprising thing to me is how ham-handed the league has looked over the last couple of weeks. And how everything seems to be sort of done on an ad hoc basis. And, they, and I just sort of look at it and say, did, did you guys just get replaced by the Keystone Cops? Like, I, don't even think, I don't think it's that recent. I think going back a few years, you can, you can see that they've been doubling down on the profit side against the against the best or the interests of the other stakeholders um you know all the talk about lengthening the schedule yeah what was the reason for that more games more games more money yeah the expanding the playoffs expanding the playoffs, allowing the season to start when the referees were on strike yeah I, that was a terrible product to put on the field why did they do it though more games more money i mean yeah. I, this ad hoc how do we keep the train rolling and keep the money rolling in attitude I think has governed a lot of their decision making for a number of years, and and it has recently gotten very very ugly because it's reared its head in some much more emotional ways that I think strike people 
closer to the, you know, pull on their emotional heartstrings more so than a referee strike or what have you. But I think it's the same decision-making matrix being applied. Like, how do we solve this problem? Um, and, and, you know, that's going to, that comes back to haunt you. And, and, you know, whether it's the NFL doing it or whether it's coach, you know, pushing on all cylinders to, you know, push bag sales one year and they, uh, you know, degrade their brand in the process. That, not that those are recent events in the NFL are equivalent to pushing more handbag sales. No, but it, but it does go to the, you know, if not identical, certainly the a similar management mindset. Yeah, if you're if you're out there maximizing near term profits, you are also probably making very bad decisions, and I think I think that's that's what we've seen here in a very very ugly way for the NFL. Uh, we will end on a lighter note with uh, some comments we got from listeners. Um, <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter, at MarketFoolery is our handle. Got, got a tweet from Matt Laswell, who wrote, uh, just in case you need a cautionary tale for an upcoming podcast, and he included a link. In some ways, this may go back to some of the things you were talking about with Alibaba. It's included a link to a story about um, with a, a a company press release and the headline of the pr- this is a company's press release the headline of which was CEO and COO disappeared most of the company's cash missing and this was the the CFO of uh, it is a comp- a shoe company based in Germany but you were saying it it, it sounds like it's operations or maybe in China I think so but basically they just they just up and and all of a sudden the CEO and the COO, who appear to be related in some way, and are just, they're gone. The company's cash is gone. This is a stock that trades on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange in Germany. Uh, not surprisingly, shares down 76% on Tuesday. You saw this I think story. that's for cause. <laughs> I think that's for cause. Sometimes the market overreacts this sort of thing. I think this is appropriate. But I think leadership disappearing. Absconding. <laughs> untraceable and taking most of the money with them. You're saying that makes sense. This isn't. This isn't the first time this has happened in China. There was a company a few years ago called like China Milk Products, and they, they their business was um, they dealt in in bull semen. Okay. And it traded in Singapore. And one day their auditors called them, and uh, they didn't pick up the phone. And then some major shareholders started calling, and, and phone calls didn't get answered. And it turned out they they had already been missing for some time. So kudos <laughs> to these folks for discovering this early in the process, because I've seen it take longer. But um, kudos to the CFO who put out this statement. You know, and this also goes back to not not that it's not that it's directly related to Alibaba, but at the end of the day, if you're going into court in China and you're a foreigner and you're you're suing a Chinese national, good luck. You have an uphill battle, I believe. <laughs> uh, yesterday, uh, we got a question about uh, things who are, that are must see or must do if you're visiting Washington D.C. Morgan Housel, I said this. No, actually, it will be interesting to see what happens because China is trying to track crack down on corruption. Oh, okay. And if 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 if, if um, the Xi Jinping regime decides that they, this is an ugly story for them, I, I would also not want to be a Chinese national when the Chinese government decided right. to make an example out of me. Right. If the CEO and COO are found <laughs> by the Chinese government, again, good luck. Yeah. Um, Morgan Housel, as I mentioned right before we started taping, so smart, so great on so many topics, but apparently not when it comes to the question, what should people do when they're visiting Washington, D.C.? He does live in Baltimore. So he does him... live in Baltimore. I just thought as someone new to the area. Which, but... as a person who makes a lot of good decisions, seems like a poor decision by Morgan for a variety of reasons. But, well, 
you know, the, the, the things we do for the people that we live with That's that true. we're related to by marriage. That's true. Um, uh, from Tobin Anthony, who tweeted, Friday night jazz at the Hirshhorn Gardens. Hashtag cool things to do in D.C. I have heard good things about the, the Friday night jazz at Hirshhorn. So, uh, so there's one more thing to do. But you have lived in the area for a long time. You went to Georgetown University. Um, I mentioned the, the Teddy Roosevelt uh, Roosevelt Island because I think that's a that's a neat place to visit that doesn't really get a lot of the attention. That we saw like, a six foot long black rat snake there once. <laughs> wow, you just completely undercut. For, so that's for, cool for anyone who is thinking about going to Roosevelt. Climbing up a tree. <laughs> My son saw that and forever remembered that snakes can climb trees. Wow. What do you recommend for someone who's coming into town? There? Is there family? This, uh, or, is this, or is this a single single guy on the prowl? What are we? What are I we? think this is a husband and wife. Husband and wife. Husband and wife. Uh, young couple coming. You know, making a long drive, taking uh, a couple of days in D.C. You know, some things to do, or you know, things that it's like, hey, here's something that you know is maybe maybe not off the beaten path, but look, everybody knows about the Lincoln Memorial, Washington Monument. You know, they're 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 well known things, but. Mm-hmm. You know what's a what's a, a nice way to spend an afternoon or evening? Uh, the botanical garden is lovely, uh, which is in Northeast DC. And if you are of the um, beer drinking type, <laughs> the botanical garden is located um, very nearby the DC Brow Brewery, which is on Bladensburg. Oh, that's right, Bladensburg Road, which is a nice. And the Costco that sells liquor is right there, so you can do a nice <laughs> little triple there of hitting the botanical garden, DC Brow for because they usually have food trucks there for lunch and a beer. They do nice IPAs, and then and then stopping at Costco for your to, so you can stock your own hotel bar that night. Um, so that that would be my activity set in Northeast DC. Um, the especially if you if you if you have a few weeks until you're coming, the leaves are going to start to change at the Botanical Gardens. Yeah. It's quite nice. Um, I think they always have something good on at the at the at the modern part of the National Gallery. I like the modern wing on the National Gallery. Um, Georgetown soccer, top ten <laughs> in the country. You can do your little Georgetown afternoon. If you're a fan. There is a... Uh, Georgetown, great neighborhood to poke around uh, Yeah, no, right, absolutely. The school is lovely, and you can, I think the tickets are five bucks. You, there are lots of places to eat lunch down in Georgetown. It's a steal. And then uh, the, the new, if you're, into, if you're into the foodie thing, there's a new market called Union Market, which has lots of local proprietors. There's like a, some oyster, oyster farmers. There is are, that in Georgetown? No, that is in, um, I think it might be on 6th Street, north of the Verizon Center. Um... That's worth that's worth a stop if you're if if you're into that. So I would you know divide up you know tackle the mall, hit a museum, do the Georgetown thing, do the botanical gardens thing. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, um, longtime listeners know our mission here at the Motley Fool is to help the world invest better. Um, and I know that amongst our dozens of listeners, we have members of our different services, uh, but we also have folks. Who- oh, and Great Falls. Oh, wait a minute, Billy Goat Trail. If you like to hike, the Billy Goat Trail. Is outstanding. Really? Have you never been on the Billy Goat Trail? I, I, I've been on a couple of different trails. I, I feel the, like it's the, the, it's the Rock Scramble one, right along the the, the yeah. river. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's out. That's four miles up from Georgetown. That is the yeah. Anglers Inn Park. Do the do the, It's like a two mile hike. You can knock it out in a few hours, and it's it's a lot of fun. Nice view. Um, nice. Billy Goat Trail is, is outstanding. God, that's it's so much more valuable information than Morgan offered yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> um, as I was mentioning, that's uh, good because I, I'm extraordinarily. Morgan finally got one of those um, Wall Street Journal 
uh, cartoons of his head. Yes, because he now I forget the exact term for pe- them. Periodically writes for the Wall Street Journal. I am so envy. This is this is a lifetime dream of mine was to get one of those, and if, he got one. Yes, if you follow Morgan on Twitter, that's now his yeah, avatar. Yeah, yeah. Oh, as it should be. I oh, mean, absolutely. That's that is a that's a that's an achievement. Yeah. So I'm glad I can best him in, in <laughs> one way because he has. Take it. He's achieved a lifelong dream of mine at the tender age of whatever Morgan is. Um, as I was saying, we have we have members of our services who listen, but some folks uh, who are listening are not. Um, so I want to mention we we have a, a special offer for uh, Market Foolery listen uh, listeners. If you just go to marketfoolery.fool.com, um, it's a free way to sort of kick the tires of our flagship service, which is Motley Fool Stock Advisor, uh, run by David and Tom Gardner. Um, so check it out. Just go to marketfoolery.fool.com. It's a special offer. Um, you get sort of a, a free trial of Motley Fool Stock Advisor. Um, again, a, a market-beating service uh, since its inception 12 years ago. So check it out. Uh, Tim Hansen, as always, thank you for being here. Thank you, sir. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That is it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ryan Caton. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.